I'm Monica Lopez, and this is Making Contact. This week we present part two of Sacrifice Zones, in which the fossil fuel industry makes its first move on a major population center in the Northwest. It's an accident of geography that the lowest path from the middle of North America to Asian markets happens to be through the Columbia River Gorge. It happens to be lined with people who want something better, lined with tribal fishermen. It's this narrow path that they're trying to move through, and we are going to do everything we can to make sure it stays closed. You're listening to Sacrifice Zones, about the pressures to turn the Pacific Northwest into a fossil fuel export hub. In the second half of the program, the fossil fuel industry makes its first move on a major population center in the Northwest. There has been some interest in having a facility to move crude oil from the mid-continent oil fields to the West Coast refineries. Abby Russell is the communications manager for the Port of Vancouver, USA, across the Columbia River from Portland. Late in 2012, we put out a request for statements of interest from companies that might be interested in bringing a transload facility here to the port. We received about four or five responses to that request, and of those responses, to Zero Savage Joint Ventures stood out. One of the great things about this area is it's the closest deep water port to the mid-continent of the United States, and in particular, the Bakken oil fields. Jared Larrabee is a general manager for Vancouver Energy, a joint venture of Tesoro Oil and Savage Companies. So it's really the fastest way and the cheapest way, the most economical way and the safest way to get crude oil on rail to a vessel and then delivered by a vessel to those West Coast refineries. The Port of Vancouver is very large and ships huge volumes of wheat and other commodities. Dan Sears with Columbia Riverkeeper. The idea of it becoming the largest oil terminal in North America doesn't seem to be a fit for that part of the Columbia River. We don't judge the commodities that we move. We look at, is there a market for this? Can it be done safely? Does it fit with our values? We're going to move a commodity if it can be done safely, if it can be done in an environmentally responsible manner. And that reflects on whether you're moving uh, wind energy or crude oil. The port has been that industrial driver of economic growth of industry here in the region. There's no residential areas close by here. It's all heavy industry out here uh, in the port, in the port district. So this fits right in with what the port was designed to do. We live a half a mile from the proposed terminal site. Linda Garcia is a resident of the Fruit Valley neighborhood, which borders on the port of Vancouver, and a board officer for the Fruit Valley Neighborhood Association. We have always had a very positive relationship with the Port of Vancouver. When tenants come in, we meet them at our meetings. We get to know what they're going to bring into the neighborhood. We ask Tesoro and Savage and BNSF to come in and speak to us about everything and be open to neighbor concerns. We set up two meeting times for them to come in. They came to the first meeting and did not show up for the second meeting because they were asked hard-hitting questions at the first meeting. The board actually approved the lease in July of 2013. Abby Russell with Port of Vancouver, USA. And after that, we had additional public comment at several meetings at the public's request. One of the first groups to oppose the oil terminal was Local 4 of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Jared Smith is their current president. Well, our first concerns were an oil spill on the river, the amount of volume that would be going through this pipe to load an oil tanker. One spill would shut down the river. And the second concern was it's taking up land that we've always traditionally used for windmill tower storage. And that's like probably the most labor-intensive work that we do at the Port of Vancouver. And it provides a ton of jobs. And if you're going to put an oil terminal where we store windmill projects, is windmill projects going to lose out to oil? 
in North America, we've increased our production of crude oil by over 3 million barrels a day. At the same time that that's happened, the North Slope crude production has dropped significantly. And we've been filling that gap in the meantime with foreign imports. And this really allows us to bring that production that we do have in North America to the West Coast. Oil is not going to be here in the next 50 years like it is now. Windmills are. So we have something that's creating a lot of jobs for us now and has the potential to create a lot of jobs in the future. Tesoro and the port is not looking into the future all that much. They're looking at a, what's going to benefit them right now. And it's further creating dependence upon something that we don't need. While the board was considering public comment and concerns and whether to approve a lease like this, we had a, a tragic incident uh, up in Lac Magantique in Quebec. The massive inferno sent flames into the night sky, fueled by crude oil from ruptured tank cars. The runaway, unmanned 73-car train derailed about 1 a.m., sparking a fire and explosions that shattered the quiet of this lake town, Black Magantic, 135 miles north of the main border. That was the first time that anybody had really given a lot of thought to the movement of crude oil. And it had been moving by train for decades, along with other products like diesel and jet fuel and fertilizer that are just as potentially dangerous. One Port of Vancouver commissioner said, you know, well, oil doesn't explode. Well, then it very spectacularly and tragically exploded in the middle of this little Canadian town and killed all these people. And despite that, they rushed ahead and made a decision to enter into this lease agreement. No one can ensure that accidents will never happen. That that's unfortunately is just a reality of the time that we live in. And moving any commodity that has the potential to endanger our, our neighbors, we're going to be watching that very carefully. We're going to do everything that we can to make sure that it can be moved safely. All we've ever asked is to be transparent and upfront with us. Just tell us upfront what the expectations are, be realistic and honest with us about the things that could potentially happen and tell us how you're going to address that. We did have folks that were coming expressing concerns and many of them are the same concerns that we have, that it can be done safely, that it can be done in an environmentally sensitive manner. We live in this community too, we care a great deal about it and we can't do business here without having a safe and environmentally sound record and environmentally sound projects. Initially the Tesoro project would be bringing in crude oil from the Bakken region of North Dakota, which is very volatile, has high levels of dissolved gases like propane, ethane, butane, and other volatile organic compounds that make it both dangerous in terms of its flammability and explosivity, but also dangerous in terms of the toxic fumes that are released if it spills. We're designing a world-class facility with state-of-the-art techniques and engineering built into the facility, and our programs are designed first with prevention as the first and foremost tactic, mitigation, next, and then response uh, as the final tactic. Every job we do at the port, there's going to be workers in the blast zone. Jared Smith, International Longshore and Warehouse Union. We also would be doing work inside of the loop track where this terminal is proposed. And there's one way in and there's one way out. And if there was any kind of an explosion, there's no way anybody's getting in or out of there. We've actually offered training, as we know the railroads have, to first responders here locally. The offer is still open and we hope that at some point in time they'll be able to take advantage of that training that we are offering. Myself and another member went and met with the local firefighters in Vancouver. They say that they can't put it out. All they could do is cordon off an area, you know, a half mile away or more and prevent people from going out, because they definitely aren't going to go in. I want to dispel a couple of misstatements that were made this morning during the Tesoro Savage presentation. 
There have not been a couple of accidents involving oil by rail. There have been seven major accidents across the United States, across Canada since 2013. One of them in Heimdall, North Dakota, resulted in multiple fireball explosions. It is not hyperbole to say that these are rolling bombs. The other lie that they told us this morning is that they operate with transparency. Were they operating with transparency when they signed the contract without public comment and public input? No, they were not. We've taken a lot of public comment over the last three years or so, and it's been enlightening. We've incorporated a lot of that into what we're looking at to help ensure that this terminal can be operated as safely and environmentally responsible manner as possible. Look how many people turn out and keep turning out. It isn't easy or convenient to keep showing up with the same message of no oil terminal, time after time. What we decide here is vital to us locally, but also has global impact. What do we align ourselves with? A clean, healthy, sustainable city for the future where we decide? Or will we be victims of outside corporate interests whose methods are informed by unconscionable greed, blatant disregard for scientific facts, a profound lack of respect for life, and an absence of decency? I've never seen this many groups against a project. To have the Longshore Union, to have steelheaders, the tribes, the environmental groups, business owners, all these nurses and doctors and psychologists. We listen to every piece of feedback that we receive, and certainly our Board of Commissioners, our elected board, is listening as well. There's over 13 neighborhood associations that don't want this. There's over 100 local businesses. There doesn't seem to be anybody that wants this except for the people that are going to profit off of it. The people taking it out of the ground, the people moving it, the people shipping it. Nobody else wants it. Thank you for the opportunity to voice my support of the uh, Vancouver Energy Project and extension of the lease. My name is Michael Wolf. I'm Senior Vice President of Asia and Energy Services. We work at all the Tesaro sites, refineries in California and Washington. Why I support this project? West Coast needs a low-cost, secure source of oil supply. The West Coast is virtually cut off from the rest of the country and the rest of domestic supply without rail. The port kind of operates in the shadows. Nobody really pays attention to it. Port commissioners are typically down ballot races. Without really any public oversight at all, they signed this lease for this enormous oil terminal. By contrast, the city council of Vancouver, when they actually looked at the proposal, listened to their citizens, they were unanimously opposed to it. And so what's happened in Vancouver and what's happening now in other places is that the fossil fuel infrastructure fight is spilling over into local politics. The community spoke pretty loud when they elected a Newport Commissioner, Eric LeBrant, who was running, basically, you know, opposing the oil terminal, and then they had another candidate who was in favor of it. Eric won by a lot. Even with Eric LeBrant on the Vancouver Port Commission, he was still outvoted two to one. And every time the commission has had an opportunity to terminate their lease agreement with Tesoro Savage, they have voted instead to extend the lease. I can't wrap my mind around the idea that I could be sitting in my living room right here, right now, with you talking to me, and if that terminal were here, and anything happened, we could be gone in a heartbeat. That's what it feels like they're telling us every single time I go to speak, or I testify before them, that it's okay, it's a small risk. It has been six hours now since an oil train derailed in the Columbia River Gorge, but just in the last hour, the fire has intensified, and so has the thick black smoke that's billowing from those flaming tanker cars. At 
1220 on Friday afternoon on June 3rd, I was sitting in a public hearing about developing rules for how the railroads have to report and prepare for derailments and oil spills into the Columbia River. My phone started buzzing and I was getting text messages from Columbia Riverkeeper staff who were saying that an oil train had derailed in Mosier and was on fire and my stomach just sank. I sort of looked around the room and I just sort of got up and I said, I don't know if you know this, but an oil train's derailed and is on fire in Mosier. I kind of have to go. I was actually in Asheville, North Carolina, and I got a text while driving. There's a fire, an oil train derailed. Arlene Burns is the mayor of Mosier, Oregon, a small town in the Columbia River Gorge, 69 miles east of Portland. I was on the phone with various people. I started getting calls from people saying, what's going on? I closed my eyes and I was thinking, oh my God, this is happening now. Paul Lumley, Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. And we had people out there fishing. I just thought, this is the end. Brett Vanden Heuvel is our executive director for Columbia Riverkeeper. You know, as soon as he got news of this, he and Liz Terhar went up to Mosier to take a look at this. I, I just heard that it happened, so I drove over there, and the emergency response wasn't there yet. My coworker and I, Liz, got off the exit and looked and saw the burning oil train. On that ramp, I felt for the very first time the deep fear associated with the hazard of oil trains. And I didn't stop. I wanted to take some pictures for the website. I wanted to do this. And I, I got right back on the highway and said it headed east because it was not safe. The first thing happening was getting people away from the potential blast zone. The school was evacuated in about 17 minutes. The uh, subdivision that's nearest to the incident site was evacuated. And then the rest of town very quickly was put on level two evacuation, which was pack up your car and be ready to hit the road. It was really scary for several hours where the fire seemed to be growing. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot the first responders could do other than get people away from it. When the train derailed, it knocked out a manhole, yanked it out of the ground basically, and in some wild, strange blessing, most of the oil that spilled went through this manhole and into our sewage treatment plant like a big swimming pool. So it wasn't great news for our sewage treatment plant, but it contained the oil in about the greatest place that you could contain oil possible. The biggest luck was that it was not a windy day. It's a windsurfing capital of the world. People come there from all over the world to experience the wind that's constantly blowing down the Columbia River Gorge. So the idea of this happening on a relatively calm day is pretty remarkable. The air was almost still, so this big plume of nasty black smoke was going pretty much vertical. It, it did cause some wildfire that was close to the tracks that our local fire department was able to keep contained. If this had happened one day before and we had a 30 mile an hour wind blowing straight into Mosier off the river, we would have lost the whole town and we would have lost a good chunk of the gorge around it. All of the communities along these tracks, they know it could have been them. That train was bound for Portland and Vancouver and ultimately Tacoma, Washington. So that train was going to be passing through the Portland metro area during afternoon rush hour on a Friday. So it could have derailed anywhere. This wasn't an accident. It was predictable that this was going to happen. It was just a matter of when and where. And for us, it's very strange that they picked us. Our motto of our town is small enough to make a difference, and I think we're going to have to live up to that motto and be a microphone for this issue on a larger scale. Good afternoon. My name is Eric LeBrand. I'm a commissioner at the Port of Vancouver. A lot of us here are angry today, and I'm one of them. I'm angry because this isn't our river to damage or endanger. Our entire region depends on this river for food, 
water, jobs, recreation, and just plain something nice to look at. No one has the right to spoil it. No one. We demand a rapid response and a complete and thorough cleanup. Long before the train tips over, long before the fires start, we need our legislators to give this issue an actual, hard, serious look that it requires. Or these disasters are going to continue to happen again and again. It's time for us to stand up and say, this is our river. Less than 24 hours after the derailment, we probably had 150 or so people marching through Hood River. I work for four tribes, Yakima, Umatilla, Warm Springs, and Nespers. We have fishing rights right out here. We have treaties with the United States to protect our fishing rights. Yet these trains could upend all of that. If we stick together, we can stop these proposals. We can stop these fossil fuel trains. We can stick together. We can do it. Let's say no to oil trains. Everyone is feeling the same thing and, and asking the question of themselves now, what can I do so that no other community experiences this? At the very least, people will be protesting any future oil train shipments, and I would not be surprised if it went beyond that to people trying to find creative ways to stop these oil shipments from happening. Oil, don't need it. Keep it in the ground, it's time to get rid of it. Oil, don't need it. Leave, you'll What happened wasn't an accident. It was a statistically foreseeable event that will happen again, and it will happen much more frequently if the Vancouver project goes forward. Any reasonable decision maker at this point would not approve a project like this. In September 2014, the fossil fuel fight came to Portland when the Calgary-based Pembina Pipeline Company made a deal with the Port of Portland to build a propane export terminal at the port. With Pembina, Portland joined a list of almost every port on the Columbia in considering a fossil fuel project. Jasmine Zimmer-Stuckey is a senior organizer with Columbia Riverkeeper. Portlanders have always played a role in helping these other communities. And when Pembina came along, it was a wake-up call that Portlanders' role was not just to help other communities, it was to organize themselves. The first thing that got people's attention was the potential for something to blow up, to catch fire. And then the more people dug into it, the more they realized that this was just a gargantuan carbon project. That's what mobilized thousands of activists to start packing city council hearings and going directly to the decision makers and demanding that they not turn Portland into a huge fossil fuel hub. Our mail was running a thousand to one against the Pembina proposal. Charlie Hales was mayor of Portland from 2012 to 2016. I'm not sure if we could get a thousand to one agreement on which cardinal direction the sun rises each morning. They were very, very close to getting all the approvals they needed. And really, the entire issue hinged on a small connecting pipeline that would have connected the tanks to the ships. That needed to go through an environmental zone. Because piping propane through the environmental conservation zone along the Columbia River was prohibited, Pembina actually needed an amendment from the city council in order to make their project work. They got through the Planning and Sustainability Commission. By the time it got to city council, the worm had turned thanks to enormous public pressure. Portland has a climate action plan that Mayor Hales was very proud of and had gone to the Vatican to talk with people about what Portland was doing. In the meantime, back in Portland, 
people are packing sustainability commission hearings and calling on fossil fuel Charlie to walk the walk and say no to this big fossil fuel project. And he came back from meeting with the Pope and not that long after announced that he had changed his mind on this project. The more I looked at it and certainly the more the community looked at it, you know, we all reached the conclusion that this is really contrary to our values. If it weren't for that pipe that connected the tanks to the ships and the fact that it crossed through a zone that didn't allow pipes, this whole project might have been built. We may not have Portland's fossil fuel resolution as a result. Inspired by the climate activists who stopped the Pembina Terminal, Mayor Hales co-sponsored a resolution that uses Portland's Zoning and Land Use Authority to ban any future fossil fuel export projects in the city. One of the things we did last year was pass the resolution that said, this is city policy. We're not going to export fossil fuels anymore from Portland than we do now. My name is Bob Salinger, and I'm here representing the Audubon Society of Portland and our 16,000 members in the Portland metro region. Some people ask, what kind of message it sends to the local business community? I say it sends a clear and important message. It tells the community that Portland is not hitching its economic wagon to the very industries we should be driving toward obsolescence. That we want businesses in Portland that are safe and sustainable. That we are more concerned about the health of our communities than the wealth of distant shareholders. As the Portland City Council was about to approve the final ordinance banning future bulk fossil fuel storage facilities within the city, the political winds from Washington, D.C. changed course. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon and TV... When I found out that Donald Trump is the president-elect, it was really jarring. And the, the things I thought about first were not about climate. I thought about the people who are really the most at risk. People of color who watched a president run on openly racist policies and win. These are people who are part of our movement. We have immigrant rights activists who've been leading voices in Vancouver because the neighborhood that would be the most impacted by the oil terminal has a large Latino and immigrant population. And these people are going to be facing a Trump administration that has stated they want to deport any undocumented American. We needed to get as far as we could with as many of these fossil fuel issues as we can, while also putting a lot more effort into reaching out to the other struggles that maybe are facing much worse repercussions, at least initially, from this. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, we are citizens of a good place, and it is so good to see you all. So thank you for being part of the legitimate exercise of democracy, and may that always be true in our city and elsewhere. As we all experienced with the Pembina proposal last year, the zoning code actually allows fossil fuel terminals without any limit on the size of these terminals. We, of course, passed a resolution saying we're going in a different direction, and today is the proposal to put that into city law, into our code. We didn't know if we would be able to get them to amend this policy to make sure it didn't have big loopholes, because the version that came originally to the city council had some problems. But they had a 300 people in the room. They had these incredibly well-spoken high school students. My name is Tyler Hahn, Tucker Holston, and we all attend Lincoln High School. We know that we have to stop building new fossil fuel infrastructure now if we are to have any hope of remaining within reasonable emission limits and preventing climate chaos. Yet fossil fuel companies continue to operate unchallenged by the government and intend to extract five times as much carbon as we can safely utilize. Change cannot wait until our generation begins to run for public office and to write our own legislation. The change has to start with you. If we don't begin right now, by the time we're old enough to hold a public office, it will already be too late. My name is Lily Mason, and I'm Olivia Magritte, and we are students from Sunnyside Environmental School. 
Last year, three of our fellow friends and students came here to testify against any future fossil fuel infrastructure development in the Portland area. The council unanimously approved this resolution and promised to enforce it. But now we feel cheated. With these proposed rules, new infrastructure with under 2 million gallons of fuel would be accepted. This would allow more greenhouse gases to be admitted into our atmosphere, which is harmful to everyone, everywhere, and there's no way we can ignore that. Right now, Portland has a chance to prohibit all new fossil fuel terminals and require our existing facilities to make seismic safety improvements without expanding. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. more of a contrast between the disheartening insanity of this week and the hopeful leadership that we see from young people in this community. Let's hear it for our students. And then Kinder Morgan came up and they were sort of combative for no reason with a city council that's appeared ready to grant them a big compromise. Good afternoon. I'm Ron Mathers and I feel like we have been invited to a barbecue and we're on the menu. We are opposed to fossil fuel terminal zoning amendments. My company, Kinder Morgan, rebuilt a tank in Linton. We increased the capacity by 30%, but that's what it took to justify the investment. We feel that Portland is not an island, and that instead of being visionary and exemplary, that these land use restrictions and zoning changes are actually short-sighted and uh, very self-centered. So you're saying that the 10% increase isn't going to foster any change? No, that is correct. It's going to not foster change, and it's going to lead to disinvestment, and it's going to lead to these facilities being stranded. And if that's what your intention is, you will achieve that goal. And, uh, you know, I think we probably put that forward as an incentive. If it's not, then I think we should have a discussion about whether we need it or not. This, I believe, is the first stone in a green wall along the west coast of the United States. And I spent the last couple of days with my colleagues, the mayors of these other cities, and their citizens want this kind of action too. So we've given them a template for how, once again, an idea can get started in one community and quickly replicate in another. So I know these are dangerous and scary times, as I said earlier, and we might wonder, is it still true that we will work towards a better day and towards a more just and climate just world. I do believe that that's true. What you have proven is that here in this place, we can start something that will change the world. Thank you all very much. Remember, as we go into this next four years of a Trump administration, we didn't need Washington DC to help us. These local fights, these local decision makers are where we can stop big projects and make big change. We're at this really, really critical juncture where we need local and state leaders to do everything they can to stop these projects because we know that Trump and a very fossil fuel friendly Congress, many of whom deny climate change even exists, will be looking for ways to roll back those authorities. The people that we're working with are very motivated, maybe even more motivated now that we've seen that it really isn't a matter of if there will be an oil disaster, it's happened. We need to get people's attention. If people choose civil disobedience to get the attention, 
that is just fine by me. That's how change really happens. That's how society changes when people have had enough. Coal, oil, gas, none of these shall pass. Leave Sacrifice Zones was written, narrated, and produced by Barbara Bernstein. Original music was composed and performed by Barbara Bernstein, Floating Glass Balls, and Anna Fritz. Special thanks to Dan Sears, Eric DePlace, Carol Newman, Peter Siegel, Steve Early, KMUN Coast Community Radio, Melissa Marslin, Jerry Mayer, Jan Zuckerman, and Bill Bigelow. This program was funded by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the Puffin Foundation. That wraps up the final installment of Sacrifice Zones. Thanks to producer Barbara Bernstein for her work on this documentary. To find out more about the people and organizations featured in today's program, check out radioproject.org. That's also where you can download a copy of the show or get the Making Contact podcast. I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Coal, oil, gas.